You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here today with, oh wait, Adam Hawkins was supposed (laughs) to be here today, and he has decided. He's refused to join us. But I am joined today by Kent Rabelais, our Executive Director of Communications, Production, and Technology. Kent? Well, it's, the thing is, I'm just disappointed right now because I was promised the Adams mm-hmm. as a pair, and I have an Adam. Yeah. Um, but you know I'm going to try to just muscle my way through the show. I am not completely unfamiliar with your disappointment, both in Adam and in disappointment in just mm-hmm. having me here. It is very common for people uh, to feel disappointed around me. But today's episode, you will not be disappointed. We're going to have a conversation with author and speaker Andy Crouch about technology and the family. We're here today with Andy Crouch. Andy is an author and speaker. He previously served as the executive editor of Christianity Today. He serves on the governing boards of Fuller Theological Seminary and the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. Andy's written many books, including Culture Making, Playing God, Strong and Weak, and his latest, the one we're talking about today, is The TechWise Family. So welcome, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so glad we got to talk. Me too. Uh, seriously, Kent and I are very excited about getting into this book and what you've written about. It is, like we were discussing just a moment ago together before we got you on here, it seems more deeply personal than a lot that we've read from you, but we love a lot that we've read from you. And I thought we could start maybe by just talking about the tagline of the book, that that will kind of usher us into the topic. So the tagline of this book is that everyday steps for putting technology in its proper place. Can you just unpack that idea for us? What is what is technology, and then what is putting it in its proper place? Ah, yes. Well, so actually, I should start with the proper place phrase, because this was actually a game. Um, this is quite a personal book. It, it, it's based on uh, my family's uh, experience, and this was a game I played with my little kids uh, when they were small, and we needed to clean up the house, which, as you know, I, it is just unbelievable how messy. Uh, I'm not even thinking about like how much clutter, I guess, um, can come from even just two small children. At the uh, same I have time. three small children, and my house is only, oh my always immaculate. So I have no idea what you're talking about. But just keep talking anyway. Go ahead, Andy. I'll just pretend. I pretend I know what you mean. Go ahead. Oh man! Well, at least in the Crouch household, we would, you know, it would just get to the point where it was just too much. And so I would put some music on and uh, put like 10 minutes worth of music. And I'd tell the kids, okay, in 10 minutes, anything that's not in its proper place is getting thrown in the trash. And I had a very large, menacing trash can right in the middle of the living room. And so everyone would, you know, scurry around. And it was just this way of sort of enforcing a deadline to get the house cleaned up. (laughs) And so when... I started talking with my friends at, at the Barna Group who co-published this book uh, with me and contributed some really good research to it. When we were talking about how to frame this book, I said, well, you know, really what has happened with technology is without us, any of us trying, I mean, this is how clutter works, right? Without anyone intending it, it's ended up everywhere in our homes. It's sort of taken over in all kinds of ways we never really meant for it to mm-hmm. do. And the question is, really, what's the proper place for it? And what I would always tell my kids is, you know, there's a right place for everything that you own, all your stuffed animals, all your toys, and let's just get it back there so that we have space for kind of sanity in our, our living room or in your bedroom. Um, and I think, you know, so you asked how, how would I talk about technology or what do I mean by that? And 
what I am thinking about when I talk about technology is not just the screens, which are a huge issue for all of us and for our families, but really the broader category is, uh, when I say in the book, it's, it's everything that makes our lives easy everywhere. So technology is anything that has these properties of easy and everywhere. That is, it simplifies our lives in all kinds of ways that are very helpful, and it's just sort of omnipresent. It's uh, available all the time. And this is a way in which technology is different from what you might call a tool. Um, so a tool, like you think about a um, driving nails, right? Yeah. You can use a hammer to drive nails, but that actually requires a fair amount of skill. Right. Um, and you have to carry the hammer with you. But the first step towards the technology of driving nails would be like a nail gun, where which as near as I can, I mean, I'm sure you can mess things up uh, if you don't have the right amount of skill. But <laughs> I can imagine to, to drive <laughs> for me to drive nails, I can do that much faster, more readily with a nail gun than with a hammer, right? right. And then if I could have a nail gun that just went where, wherever I told it to go and nailed whatever I needed without me having to move, that would be like the ultimate technology of the nail gun. Yeah. And actually, our homes are now full of this stuff that just works by itself does what we want it to do, make our lives easy, and that in its proper place, that's fine, but I'm worried that it's colonizing parts of our lives that were never meant to be easy everywhere. That's interesting. I want to I get into more of the book here as you talk about you have these 10 tech-wise commitments, and I want to get to those. But before I do, the very beginning of the book, the foreword of the book is actually written by your daughter, and I would love to just hear from you as a dad. What was that like to know this is a book about kind of a parenting philosophy, and you're inviting your daughter, the recipient of this philosophy, which seems risky to me, to say like, hey, before anybody reads what daddy has to say, you get to talk. What was that like for you? What was it like for your daughter? Well, um, it was cool. I mean, so the only, there are only two times you can really write a parenting book, I think. One is before you have children, and you think you know <laughs> what parenting is. And then the other is like once they're at least well into their teenage years and you realize you've not totally messed things up. When you're actually in the <laughs> middle of it, like with five or eight or ten-year-olds, you're sure you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but so our daughter's 16 now, and... Um, and I, I approached her, I said, would you be interested in writing about this, just a few pages? And the interesting thing is our kids, so Amy's uh, 16 going on 17, her brother's 20 years old now, just turned 20. They actually now would say that the pretty radical approach we took toward parenting and technology was fantastic. Like, they, hmm. they totally endorse it. And they've so always believed that? To, what's that? Have they always believed that? No, there, <laughs> there were some very difficult, especially for our son, um, some really difficult moments, especially when other boys would come over to play when he was maybe 8, 9, 10. And the, as, as near as I can tell, the only thing 8-year-old boys know to do anymore is play video games together, and we didn't have any of that stuff. And, and these, these boys who he wanted to be friends with just would refuse to come back to our house because they were so bored. So there were plenty of bumps along the way. But I knew that Amy felt good about it in the end and, and was actually very grateful for the way we've handled some of these things. And so she was very excited about it. But here's the other part of the answer. I don't think she would mind me saying this. Uh, I discovered how much my daughter is uh, made in my image, for better and for worse. Mm. Uh, she's this very good writer. She loves to write. But when she was actually handed this assignment of writing the forward, she did exactly what I've done with every one of my books which is get absolutely paralyzed with procrastination <laughs> and fear that it's not going to be any good. 
and put it off until the last possible minute. And this is exactly what I do. I mean, I find it so hard to write when I know that other people are going to read it. Wow. Um, and I had to sort of parent my, my daughter <laughs> through the same exact kind of psychological struggle that I had. But what, what ended up coming out is so sweet and wonderful and I think a really good kind of setup for the book that basically says this is going to be harder in many ways. Like, we yeah. use technology to make our lives easier, so if you want to limit technology, you're, you're signing up for making your life harder than it would have been otherwise. But yeah. what she says is it's been totally worth it, and it unlocks kind of possibilities in the world that weren't there otherwise. That's great. That's really good. So before we get into the 10 commitments, um, and we'll, we'll try to look at several of those, I just – going back to the idea, listening to you talk about place, the proper place, and thinking about uh, one of the pictures you give in the book is of the hearth um, in the center of the home and, yeah. and how that used to be a hard thing to tend and to get the fire to the right place. So it was, as you're describing, that technology was – it is a technology, um, but it's a harder technology. Now we have furnaces, and they do everything for us, right. um, and, right. and and they don't do anything to concentrate our energy, or relationship, attention, and delight the way the hearth did. So then you talk yeah. about homes still need a center. They need um, something to put uh, to center us in our homes with our family that require attention and reward and um, skill, and they draw us to get together the way the hearth did. So um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about that. I think that's one of the things for me anyway before we get into the specifics that sort of frames up the whole concept of the book really well if you're finishing wow. listening to this and you're just trying to figure out what does this look like for me now um, as a family uh, to do at home. Um, I think that that picture of the hearth and the difference between the furnace was really helpful. So maybe where that came from, yeah. it, was that even with huh. you growing up, did you grow up in a situation where there was a hearth and, and your family did all these things or was it the opposite or in between? What was that like? Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting about my own growing up. I would say... I, for one thing, my dad was really fascinated by technology in the form that it existed. Uh, in you know, I was growing up in the 1970s, and and in fact, I like my introduction to being a geek, which I have been ever ever since in my life, was when my dad brought home this very early like computer terminal um, that connected to the mainframe computer mm-hmm. <laughs> at the university where he thought. I mean, these are concepts that are completely unfamiliar to you guys and anyone else. You know, who's, uh, an actual uh, young human being these days, but, um, but so on the one hand, I was, um, my world was opened up to kind of all the wonderful possibilities of these things, and I do believe they're all quite wonderful, actually. I still love, Mm -hmm. like, I program all the code for my own website because it's just so much fun to do that to Mm -hmm. me, but my parents and our whole family life, like, all the vivid memories are of things that were much less like a technological device and much more like that fireplace or the hearth. And Mm -hmm. my mom was a musician, and she had a a grand piano. And and one of my uh, sort of most rich memories from my childhood is actually being a little kid lying underneath this grand piano as my mother practiced the piano. And, and, you know, that talk about, like, you could never have that experience with, like, a digital keyboard, right? But there was this thing in our home that was, quite beautiful, made of beautiful wood and, um, you know, the black and white of the keys and the strings and so forth, um, and quite an imposing presence in our home. Uh, a grand piano takes up a lot of space, and it made these amazing sounds, right, and when my mother played and then I learned to play. Um, and that was part of the just fabric of our family's life. And 
those are my and, and then you know going camping and I actually as an adult I hate camping <laughs> like I don't I don't basically if I could just have a shower I would be fine so I just call it glamping right so uh, if I could go glamping, I would be fine. But, <laughs> That's great. But as a kid, I didn't have any choice. We would take these old musty tents. I mean, I can still remember how those tents smelled, kind of this sort of musty, uh, you know, humid kind of smell, and yeah. go somewhere. And those are all the richest experiences of my childhood, and I think every childhood, because mm-hmm. this is what kids are made for, are these kind of immersive experiences in something, whether it's inside the home, like sitting around the fireplace telling stories, or helping your mom, if your mom was the one who did the cooking, helping her cook. And, and, you know, think about the difference between just sticking something in the microwave and pressing a button, which which a a three-year-old can do just as well as a 33-year-old, and learning how, you know, how to bake with your your mom or learning how to put dinner together and all the different aromas of that stove and the sense that the stove is a little dangerous and so you have to learn how to use it. And this is what kids actually love. Mm-hmm. And um, and the problem is with technology, we now have we have devices that promise us, you know, you can have um, you can have the meal out of the freezer, into the microwave, onto the table, and no one has to do anything very difficult or complex yeah. or, or or dangerous, like use knives and use fire. But that actually takes all the delight and wonder and difficulty and character building kind of opportunities out of the home. So you know the. Uh, we used to have these things. Uh, yeah. We used to have fireplaces. We used to have musical instruments that someone in the family would learn how to play. And now we have the option to just pl- press play, you know, and let someone else has made the music, and now it just fills our home, and that's very pleasant. Yeah. But we're not making it. We're not creating it anymore. Yeah, I like think that, something that, really important has been lost. That's a beautiful picture of a, kind of the uh, tactile nature of what's lost if we just go to technology. Of course, like as a Christian, and you make this clear with your your proper place as as uh, kind of the uh, underlining uh, words that you go with. That technology is not to the Christian inherently evil, or having an easy task is oh. not inherently evil. But really, as we set up the specifics, it's what you're talking about is what's at stake if we only run to what's easy. You say in the introduction that these are precious days of childhood passing by far too fast in a haze of ghostly blue light. So before we get to this tech-wise commitments your family made, can you tell us just what is at stake? Why, even though technology is not inherently evil, yes, there's this tactile experience, but why is this important for a parent to be thinking about how they use technology in their home? It's a, I think it really depends on what you think family is supposed to be about. And what yeah. I think family really is for, in a way, is developing two things in us that I talk about in the book. One is wisdom, which is kind of deep knowledge about myself, the world, others, and God. Um, and technology can give me information, more information than we've ever had. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's no technological way to get wisdom. And wisdom That's comes good. through encounters with other people, encounters with the natural world, encounters with God in the mysterious way that we encounter God. Um, and family is meant to help us become wise about ourselves in the world, to learn things about ourselves that we don't really know, want to know about ourselves, like how selfish we can be, how easily angry we can get. Um, you know, all kinds of things come out in the crucible of family life <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. that don't come out any other way. The problem is technology can actually prevent you from developing that wisdom. So, you know, I have to learn the wisdom of how to relate to my siblings when I'm a child. But what if all of us have our own glowing rectangle when we're all crammed in the back seat of the minivan, right? Yeah. Uh, 
um, that's a place where you have to learn some wisdom and some character, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> it's like to get just to the grocery store and back is pretty challenging when you're of a certain age. And, yeah, if mom hands us all, each our own iPhone, iPod, iPad, whatever, uh, we will be completely distracted for that whole drive, and it'll be blissfully quiet. And that's good for mom, and in one sense for the kids, it's a very happy experience. But what we haven't learned is, how do I handle this annoying younger brother? Mm. Uh, how do I handle being confined? What do I do when I'm bored? If I've already always got a technological answer to that problem, I will never actually learn the things about myself and my neighbor, my siblings, my parents, my world that I'm meant to learn. So I think really what's at stake, any given use of technology often is a good thing, but when we use it all the time, it robs us of what family is meant to teach us, which is how to be a kind of full human being in the world that God created, rather than just a little consumer kind of consuming very well-developed devices that help me do things that I want to do, but never ask me to become a different kind of person. That's good. Now, you have in the book these 10 tech-wise commitments, which Kent and I can maybe pick a couple to talk about. We won't have time to talk about yeah. all 10, but somebody can definitely, you know, that's why we'd encourage them to pick up the book. I think it'd be really valuable for any parent. But Kent and I would love to talk to you about a couple of these. One that I'd like just to start with, because some of these are really practical. Some of them are kind of like high in the sky, kind of defining. But some of these really practical ones, like we wake up before our devices do, and they go to bed before we do. Can you unpack that one a little bit? Just this is what that looks like in the Crouch Home. This is what I mean. We, we wake up before our devices do. They go to bed before we do. Well, you know, so part of the background of this is the astonishing statistics. I don't have them in front of me with the uh, – I could find them in the book, but I won't take the time to turn to it. But an unbelievable number of people sleep with their phones, right? We all know – and we all know why we do it, right? It's, it's uh, for one thing you'd like to have it maybe wake you up, and so you set it as your alarm. And then there's nothing like taking that little device to bed with you, and it's like this, you know, set of last little pieces of entertainment or information or whatever before you go to sleep, and then you wake up in the morning, and you're like, oh, I want to know what's happened, who messaged me, who liked my thing, or whatever. (laughs) And then for teenagers in particular, they take their phones to bed with them because it's their connection to their friends, right? And they Mm -hmm. don't want to feel, even for a moment, disconnected. And we all have this powerful need to be connected with Mm -hmm. other people, but it's really powerful in adolescence. And what we realized in our family, starting with the dad, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, most of the stuff, the dad is like the worst in our family. (laughs) That would be me. Um, I mean, like, the, the... one maxim of this book is it is not about the kids. It's mostly about the dad, mm, that's honestly, good. at least for the crouches, <laughs> was that I was, I was using this uh, little device to actually cut myself off from, well, really connection with God and honestly connection with my wife. Like, so we're going to bed together, but um, I have this little entertaining screen in front of me that's giving me, you know, the latest tweets or whatever I want to be reading. I'm not connecting with Catherine. We're not talking. I'm, it's eliminating that vulnerability of that, that end of the day time when you're kind of tired and maybe it's hard to have a conversation at that time of day when you're exhausted from the day. Um, uh, and then I'm not interacting with God. Uh, I'm not, uh, opening myself up to whatever God might be saying to me in the moments before I go to sleep and the moments before I wake up. So for the for the grown-ups, I think the issue is it's preventing us from connecting with one another and with God. 
at the most vulnerable time of the day. For the mm-hmm. kids, the problem is that kids just can't, kids don't have the impulse control yeah. to not um, let these things uh, actually disturb their sleep the whole night. And it's really alarming how little sleep teenagers get when they have a phone that's always lighting up with notifications and and they they so much want to feel connected to their friends that they'll look at that message at 2 a.m. But that is not a healthy rhythm for a kid. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and in general, I think we've realized we really need to keep these things out of all of our bedrooms because they bring the whole world into our bedroom in a way that's not healthy for the marriage and it's not healthy for a, a developing child to have their whole life at school like, you should be able to just leave that life at school at some point and just be home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or just be having a good night's sleep. And if you take your phone with you, the temptation is just overwhelming to have something else. Yeah, so yeah. all our devices get parked in a little docking station uh, downstairs. We go upstairs to our bedrooms. And then what I've been doing recently, just one more thing on this, is when I, the last, uh, actually, since I wrote the book, I realized I don't want the first thing I do in the morning to be to check my phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so what I'm now doing is when I get up in the morning and go down, I start some tea, and I, I just open the front door and walk out on my front porch, whatever kind of weather it is, and just feel the actual like air and world around me before I turn to that glowing rectangle uh, that I'm so tempted to get immersed in. And that's been a really healthy helpful thing for that's me. so funny because literally the first thing i'll do most mornings is instead of opening my door or window check the weather app to see what's going on five <laughs> feet away through the wall yep exactly exactly yeah. yes. and i was like why am i doing this well because it's easy but but then you never have that any of those sensations right those bodily mm. sensations of why oh it's cold or, oh it's really pleasant out or wow there's birds chirping like why am i missing out on this i've only got you know 70 years, 80, if God is gracious, to enjoy this, and instead I'm checking the weather app. What am I doing with that? <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. So here's another one that you give uh, as a, a commitment, which is we use screens for a purpose and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. So this one really struck me and I think would be helpful for people that are going, hey, what if you know I've, I've seen my kid um, really have a hard time with reading and then there's an iPad app that's worked for him or her and mm. reading has come yeah. alive. And um, yeah. so I'm going again, you know, man, that seems like there's some good in this. We're saying there's good. We're saying that even if we go back to Genesis, we're seeing that um, God has given us this command to cultivate creation, and, yep. and technology is a big part of that. What I love about what you have here is yet you're saying yes and amen to that. Um, so when there's a purpose for these things, and especially when we can use them together as a family, um, maybe in that reading example that the family's doing that as together, going through that app of learning to read sure. rather than doing alone. So I, I think it would be helpful for people to hear that one in particular, and, and you talk a little bit about what that looks like for you and your home and then and how you would encourage others in that way. Yeah, definitely. I think um, what we want to avoid is letting the screens kind of uh, substitute really for two things. One is solitude and one is companionship. That's good. And oddly, the screen can prevent you from both being alone and being with other people. (laughs) So so I need to learn as a human being, and this is just as true of me at age 49 as it was for my kids when they were age nine, I need to learn how to be alone in a fruitful way. And, and of course, we're never truly alone. That is, among other things, the time when we really attend to our need for God, when we don't have other people around us 
And if when I'm by myself, I've always got this little device that has been absolutely designed to keep me sort of entertained, distracted, titillated, uh, informed, I'm never going to learn the fruitfulness of being alone and the creativity that comes from being alone. And on the other hand, if I'm in the room with other people, but I'm on my phone, as we say, which doesn't used to mean you're talking to someone on the phone, now it means you're staring at the little glowing rectangle. Right. <laughs> I'm not actually with those other people, but that's the other thing that's the great gift of family and life in a house uh, household, and I'm missing out on that too. So, so the approach we've tried to take is when, when you have a reason to use the screen, that's absolutely appropriate. If it's going to help you do something that you either need to do uh, for work or, or even if it's just going to be really good entertainment and you're going to it or you're making a choice for that, that's good, especially, especially on the entertainment front if you do it with somebody else in the family. So yeah. my wife and I sat down and watched a movie the other night, and that was a great thing for us to do to experience together. And that's really different from just sort of having the screen on in the background all the time, which kind of cuts off deep conversation or deep solitude, um, or just always turning to this thing when I don't have anything else to do. That's good. Um, so, yeah, that's, I don't know, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you this. So if somebody picks up this book, and we've just talked about two of these, you have 10 TechWise commitments. And I'd love to hear from you, maybe if there's one of these that you go, this is the one that my friend's kids they would, you kind of uh, mentioned this earlier, they would not come back because this. Or when parents have looked at these 10, this is what's been difficult. Or really, more specifically, yeah. if I put this book in the hands of a parent who maybe has kids that are already teenagers, and they go home and try to yeah. implement some of these mm-hmm. when they've never established <laughs> this before, if, they, if I, they walk in the house and take the TV off the wall from the 16-year-old and just throw it in the trash <laughs> and say, sorry, I just read this book, it's going to change our lives. Like, what, what wisdom do you give them saying, hey, this is what we started with, this is what was difficult, this is what people have struggled with with these, including the Crouch family. <laughs> well, so I definitely, so one thing to say, so the book is built around kind of 10 commitments you can make uh, that I think every one of them is, is worth considering, but I will say on a bunch of them, our family did not totally manage to do them, or even to this day doesn't totally manage to do it. And so at the end of every chapter, I like have this section called Crouch Family Reality Check, where I basically disclose all the ways in which we've fallen short on this thing. And the, the last thing I want is for this thing to feel like a guilt trip or a way to you know, make your teenagers mad at you or whatever. Yeah, I'll um, be honest. The reality and, and checks also, were my favorite part of your chapters. That's that vulnerability um, to say, this is, where, this, is where, this is a good idea, and this is where I fall short. This is where dad struggles. <laughs> I thought that was excellent. Uh, well, I'm glad. So, so here's the one, oddly, that was easiest for us and that seems most radical and crazy to people, and I understand that people feel like they can't do it, but our principle was no screens before double digits. Mm-hmm. So that is no, no glowing rectangles of any kind, TV, laptops, iPads, whatever, um, until the kids are 10. And, and actually, our kids now would say they wouldn't want their childhood any other way. They had a screen-free childhood until they got to double digits, and then we gradually, in various ways, you know, whether it was watching movies or, or whatever, it became a little more part of their lives. And now they both have iPhones, and, you know, uh, we trust them with, with that at this point. I think most people think that is impossible. Like, there's <laughs> no way to live in America <laughs> and, and do that. And I actually think it is possible, but it is hard. And, and I'm, I'm not... 
uh, no one made me judge of other people's parenting, and I get why we turn to these things and use them, and I don't think they're even always bad, per se. I just think there are things that are better when you're a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. Like, there's just, there's beautiful things you can be experiencing as a child that you'll never get to experience again in your life, and the rest of your life, you're probably going to be tethered to one of these things. I I would love for more people to take it on, That's uh, but it is hard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even school, you know, I could, how do you do this at school? And I, the, the truth is we have absolutely no evidence that screens in school help in any way with educational outcomes. In fact, we have some evidence that it actually goes the other direction. It, it impairs educational performance. Mm-hmm. But it is true that a lot of schools use these things in the elementary years, and you yeah. know, I'm not going to start a protest movement about that. <laughs> sure, yeah. So another one you have that we wanted to make sure we hit was the idea of spouses have each other's passwords. Um, and you say parents yeah. have total access to children's devices. And, and I'm, my guess is that, that many of our listeners, uh, the second part, it's a little easier for them of, yes, I'm going to have access to my children's devices. But on the spouses having each other's passwords, we would just love to hear you talk a little bit about that ah. and what's that, what that has looked like and, and what your encouragement would be there. Wow, it's interesting that you say that, because I, I would have thought it was the other way around. That it would be more natural to imagine, well, of course, you know, my wife has access to my everything I do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and to me, the radical idea, especially for teenagers, but I have a friend who does this. He has four sons, and he says to all of them, until, you are, until you're an adult and out of my home, it is my job as your dad to mo- know more about what's going on in your life than anyone else. And mm-hmm. that means I can pick up your phone anytime and scroll through the text messages or whatever. And he does. Mm-hmm. I think that is so radical. I, I didn't, uh, honestly, I did not do this with my own kids. Maybe I should have. Mm-hmm. I think his family is really healthy because of it. But I definitely think for spouses, you know, the principle is maybe more important than the actually doing it, which is there's nothing that I withhold that I should withhold from my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, all kinds of addictions feed on isolation. That's good. And so this is basically a way of saying both between uh, husband and wife and also between parents and children, we're going to have systems in place in our family that prevent us from getting disconnected from one another. Because in the disconnection from a relationship that's meant to be very intimate and caring is where all the potential for addiction and obviously the huge one, it's not the only one, but the huge one of lust and mm-hmm. pornography, this is at the root of it. So, um, you know, uh, Catherine, my wife, doesn't, I, I don't know that she very often uses the password, but it's the principle that we are laptops are an open book to each other, our email accounts are an open book, our Facebook is an open book. I got a kind of a weird message on Twitter the other day that was about some young woman who had said to someone that we knew who found me cute, she said, and I read that out loud immediately to my wife so that that Hmm. little comment, which was, I think, completely innocent and, you know, uh, so it, it didn't lodge in any way in my heart. Mm-hmm. as something that I would protect apart from my relationship with my wife, who really is the only... First of all, my wife is the only person on the planet who would find me cute. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so you see what I mean? Like, yes. And, and I also say in that chapter, like, we live in this society that's absolutely saturated by the misuse of technology to, 
to address our appetite, our desires. And none of these things are like a panacea that are going to fix any of it. But it's a way of just having these basic structures of health in our relationships that say, I want to be open to you rather than I choose what I share with you. I think that's one of the most dangerous things for especially spouses to say to each other. Yeah, I think... Uh, the reason we really want to address that is because like so many things when it deals with technology, things that maybe Christians or people in really good marriages would think are common sense maybe are not that common where password sharing with the spouses, like I love that it's in your book, but to us, we may think, yeah, in my marriage, that's easy. And a lot of people, when they think about technology, they think about privacy. Right. Yeah, it's not that easy. It's not right. that common. It's it's uh, I don't need this. Why don't you trust me? Those kind of things. And I've, yep. what I love yeah, about yep. your book is it does kind of um, demystify some of those things, but also give really practical uh, next step. I, what I love the underpinning of it, where you talk about what is a family for forming persons. It's for forming persons. Yeah. And if you're thinking about, am I using this technology to interfere with that, or is it is it feeding that? Is it helping me form my kids? So as we're as we're wrapping up here, could you just speak about how these ten things? They're not just these arbitrary rules. It's not a legalistic home, the Crouch Home. It was in order yeah. to accomplish your goal. So tell us a little bit about why you and Catherine decided we'll we'll do these ten things in order to accomplish what? <laughs> Gosh. Uh, I mean, I will say, like, we just, we, um, what's the right word? <laughs> we stumbled our way through all of this, right? So mm-hmm. we didn't, uh, I mean, maybe now that the TechWise families of the world, parents will have just the perfect blueprint. <laughs> <laughs> but we sort of know it. And, and look, once you read it, as you guys know, like, it is so far from being some simple blueprint, and I don't intend it that way at all. And it certainly wasn't that way for us. It was more this stumbling attempt to ask, basically, what will give us the richest life as a family as possible? And then mm-hmm. the consciousness, which I think is part of the problem, is we're just not conscious of the way the technology, without us even trying, can rob us of what we really want. Like, what we really want is to be deeply connected to each other, yes. to have meaningful conversations with each other, to know how to pray and, and be present with God as individuals and as a family. And we, as we were alert that technology could mess all that up and was in the world around us and in some of the families that we saw, whether at school or at church, we were like, okay, we need to address that. And, oh, oh we better address this. Like, we got an iPod, and we realized, well, we don't want people wearing these little white earbuds and isolating themselves. So we told the kids, when they, this was back when they were like 7 and 10, we said, this is called a WePod. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the rule of the WePod is it's always played for the whole family to hear. We never have uh. headphones in. And that was just like an improv moment, but it actually became really important to our family that the whole family knew it was the WePod, not the iPod. That's good. And then that, like, unlocks a lot of other really interesting conversations with your kids, right? So it's just, it's this stumbling way with lots of mistakes and (laughs) mostly on the part of the dad, uh, (laughs) you know, lots of um, shortcomings, but of saying we want to end up uh, with a family that actually knows one another and with kids who know us and love us and love God. And we got this note from our daughter when she finished sixth grade. Her her sixth grade teacher <laughs> gave them this kind of weird assignment, kind of public, weird, weird public school assignment, which was write a letter to your parents giving them some advice mm. at the end of sixth grade. And now why you should ask a sixth grader to give their parents advice, <laughs> I don't know, but that was the assignment. So my daughter writes this incredibly beautiful note. 
And she says, you've allowed me to play. You've let me create things. You've supported me in learning how to write poetry. And you've helped me love God and, and know God in, in Jesus. And then the last line of this little letter she wrote us was, thank you for my childhood. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, she's almost 17 now, and middle school and high school were still to come at that point. It's, it's all complicated in the way adolescence is complicated. And I think she would still say that, and I still have that letter, because that's what I wanted my kids to say. That's Thank great. you for my childhood. And um, we got the chance to do that with two little human beings. Yeah. And I would love for families in the U.S. to have their kids say that. Uh, because beautiful. we just made some intentional choices um, that didn't steal family from us. That's it didn't right. steal childhood from our kids. Yeah. But actually let us all experience this incredible gift of being family to each other. Well, yeah, that's a great story. And I just wanted to say, you know, here at The Village, we have benefited so much from your works and, and the way God has wired you and the way that you think and wanted to tell you thank you. I don't know what all you have going on oh, right now in your life, man. but just the importance of being able to say thank you. We we talk about on the communications and technology and production teams, which I lead here, about culture making and, and the importance of, oh. of just being intentional. We talk about strong and weak on our staff, and mm-hmm. um, I know that this book will also help help us as we just disciple our families and um, really, man, I hope that I can have my children who are six, two and 10 months um, Mm. write that type of letter one day. That's beautiful. Yeah, please go. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening, who are at the Village Church, know that we're going to have Andy out in 2018 to run a forum for us on this topic. We're really looking forward to having you then, Andy. And for everybody listening, you can go. You can go pick up that book, Tech, The TechWise Family, and it'll certainly start some discussion for you within your own home of how you use technology, how are you developing persons out of your children. Andy, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I'm so grateful to you guys. Thank you very much for the chance to talk. Thanks, you got Andy. It. God bless you, Andy. So I think, I mean, it's such a helpful conversation. I know for me as a dad, listening to it's personal. I'm wondering for you, Adam, as yeah. a pastor and elder here who's at the Dallas campus with families, and then someone here that was uh, a part of developing our time, moments, and milestones language that we use for family discipleship. As you're thinking about just someone who may be listening to this that's at the Dallas campus, it comes up to you often, as you said, and you're like, yeah. what do I do with iPhone? Um, <laughs> and you've, you've just listened to uh, this time. What's a way maybe that you would think about encouraging them or just just speaking to that person in, in Dallas? Yeah, Kent, thanks. That's a great question. I, a couple things. Uh, things like this tend to bring up guilt and shame a lot for parents. It's like, mm-hmm. oh no, what have I missed? What did I not do? What did I not plan ahead for? And That's so I hope... Me. Is it? <laughs> so. <laughs> me too, a little bit, yeah. if I'm being honest. But I, I want to free anybody listening from that to say, this is not a podcast to say, hey, shame on you. Let's yeah. talk about technology and how you've screwed this up. But at the same time, it is a great opportunity for us to talk about what is wise what is a good next step for me as a family? Have my wife and I even sat down and discussed, mm-hmm. do we have goals in why we're allowing technology or why we are not? Mm-hmm. And a plan to do that. And like you mentioned, time, moments, and milestones, we have this framework at the Village Church of of helping people plan intentionally how they're going to disciple their families mm-hmm. through intentional set-aside time, through moments, just like uh, Andy talked about, like if you're in the car and just have mm-hmm. an opportunity for conversation 
or through milestones, like these bigger opportunities to point back to, like writing a letter to your dad yeah. is a kind of a milestone memento of yeah. of something big of this is my childhood right now. These these ideas of doing that. And I think what Andy is really touching on, which is so great, is how does uh, the technology that we allow into our lives interfere with those plans and not add to them? Yeah. Like how does the – what he describes in the book as the bewitching effect of technology – interfere with the plan that I maybe have to say, I really want to communicate in everything I'm doing, uh, the supremacy of Christ. Mm -hmm. And there is absolutely in technology the advantage of saying some of those things lend themselves to helping us accomplish, like he's saying, you're going to them on purpose, you're going to them together. But I'm encouraged to go, okay, this this really pairs well with where we've been at the village, talking about leading our families. Yeah. Is there anything there for you, Ken? As you're thinking about your own home, you're saying there's some of that conviction welling up in you. Yeah. No, there is. I mean, I just think about, you know, right now with my oldest, um, we let him watch TV in the mornings, you know, kind of before school. So I'm just just being honest and maybe hope this is helpful for other parents of like, well, should we do that? Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, or, you know, yeah, just I think the the main takeaway is having that conversation with Kristen, my wife and going for us, okay hey, let's just make sure we're being as intentional as we can. And um, we may land in some different places than other families uh, for us, but we want to make sure we've had the talk and we've really thought it out and we feel good before the Lord even of we've been entrusted with these children for a time um, and and how we're raising them up. So I think that's my takeaway is is that, and of course, the gospel of like, as you you were starting out with, it's not about shame. Um, You know, it's just... um, God is good, and He has our kids, um, and right. and we, you know, we trust Him, and we pray, and we ask for wisdom, and then hopefully some of this turns into some practical things that can help our families. That's so good, yeah. And I hope I hope today was helpful for all you guys listening. That there is some wisdom out there being supplied by guys like Andy Crouch. It's a discussion we'll continue to have at the Village Church, and hopefully continue to have here on the podcast show. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website at tvcresources.net. On our next episode, we will really and truly finally have that conversation with Dr. Russell Moore. We'll be talking about artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and so much more. We will see you next time. God bless. I kind of just want to stay here and have a conversation with this microphone. It does feel like my voice is better. Yeah. I'm like, oh. <laughs> it's more of this thing. Hi, this is Adam Griffin. Listen to my baritone timbre. Do not make that the cold open. <laughs> <laughs>